My name is Sarah Hammond, and I get to serve here at the Vista as the associate community pastor. We are so glad that you've joined us this morning after what was hopefully a fun-filled week of Thanksgiving festivities. Uh, So today, we are wrapping up our series in Romans called Reading Romans Backwards. And I always get excited when we wrap up a series because it means we're starting something new. But today especially, I'm excited because it means next week we'll be jumping into our Advent series, which is one of my personal favorites. So it might seem a little weird to be closing out our backwards reading of Romans right smack in the middle of the book. And it is weird. But... I think what we're gonna see this morning is that it's actually the perfect place for us to end our series because not only does Romans 8 encompass the very heart of what Paul is wanting to communicate throughout his entire letter, but it incidentally offers the solution to the problem that the churches he has written to are facing. So let's remember for a second what that problem is. If you've been with us at any point in our series, you have likely heard it said that Paul has written Romans to these five specific house churches who were experiencing conflict between two groups of people within the churches, the weak and the strong, right? So the weak were these seemingly prudish Jewish believers who believed in Jesus as Messiah, but still very much were tied to the Jewish law. And they therefore found themselves being very judgmental towards uh, the Gentile believers or the strong as Paul refers to them. And the strong also believe in Jesus as Messiah, but they have leaned hard into their freedom from the law. And so they're finding themselves feeling very judgmental towards the Jewish Christians. We follow? So let's zero in on what's actually happening here. These two groups of Christians in the church are arguing about how Christians should live. Yeah, doesn't happen anymore, does it? They're arguing about how Christians should live. How uh, should we live out our faith in Jesus? What Christians, what should Christians do and not do? What is acceptable uh, in the church and in the life of a believer? And to be clear, they are not uh, discussing these issues in a healthy and loving and helpful way. No, they uh, have divided over and become very judgmental towards each other because of their differing views on these issues, okay? Now, why does Paul feel so passionately uh, about their disunities and their divisions that he would write this entire letter to address it? Well, in my best Austin Fisher impersonation, ready? How in the world is the world supposed to believe that Jesus Christ came to conquer the grave when he can't even conquer the family feuds that infest Christian churches? Makes the gospel unbelievable. Thank you very much. See, Paul knows that the greatest threat to the gospel is the division and the disunity between the people who claim to follow him. Okay, so that brings us to Romans chapter eight. And uh, we're gonna see an interesting parallel here in seven and eight. Dave touched a little bit on this last week, uh, but Paul is going to subtly address that there are in fact two differing ways, but it's not the two ways that these churches seem to think, okay? So we're gonna jump into our text. We're gonna start in Romans chapter eight, verse one. We're gonna read the first eight verses right now. So if you have your Bibles, hope you get them out and read, them, read along with me. 
Romans 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So Paul is saying here, yeah, there are two ways, but it's not about flesh or it's not about weak and strong. It's about flesh and spirit, flesh and spirit. You are either of the flesh or you are of the spirit. You cannot be both. Now, as believers, we absolutely experience both, do we not? Um, we, last week, Dave read a passage in Romans 7 that I have given the very scholarly title of the doo-doo passage. Now, hear me out, okay? We hear Paul saying, the good that I want to do, I don't do. And the evil that I do do, I don't want to do it, but I just keep on doing it. And after we read about uh, Paul's struggle with this sin, man, what do we feel like? We just feel like doo-doo because we'll never ever get it right. We relate to what Paul is saying in this passage in Romans 7. We'll never get it right. So the two powers, the flesh and the spirit, they are absolutely at work on us, aren't they? But they are not at work in us, not both. And so we're gonna explore that this morning. So the way of the flesh, Paul ties the way of the flesh to sin and to death. He says that we are set free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Now, why is the flesh tied to sin and death? Because of the law, okay? In verse seven, he says, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. It is impossible for us to obey God's law because of our flesh, Last week, Dave said, it's not that the law is sinful, but we are sinful. We do not have the ability in our flesh to live a righteous life because the law tells us how to live, but it does not empower us to do so. We need to understand this. It tells us how to live and what to do, but it gives us no power to live in it and measure up to it. Our mind and our flesh are hostile to God. And so here's the interesting thing about the way of the flesh. We are all born into it. Every single one of us. There's no way around it. We all come to the earth and we put on the weight of sin and the bondage of flesh and death. It doesn't matter how good we are. When we pop out of the womb, we enter the way of the flesh. And this sounds like some really unfortunate news, doesn't it? It is unfortunate news. But doesn't it take bad news to make good news good? It does. And here's the good news, which we also call the gospel. When Christ came to earth, when he suffered and died and rose again, a new way formed. A new way formed, a way out. Paul writes about it actually in chapter seven. 
Verse six, he says, but now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. So Jesus Christ shows up on the scene and a new way is born, the way of the spirit. Paul ties the way of the spirit to life and peace and freedom in Christ Jesus. He tells us there's no condemnation in this new way. Now, why is there no condemnation in the way of the spirit? Because the condemnation that we deserved was placed on Christ, every bit of it. So guess what, weak and strong? All the judgments that you have aimed at each other, they have already been paid for and judged by God and placed on Jesus. So there's no more condemnation in this new way because all of the condemnation that ever existed has already been handed out. It's already been given and placed on Christ on the cross. Paul says the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus. So you don't have to carry around that gavel anymore. Not for yourself and not for anyone else either. We are set free. Jesus Christ did for us what the law could not and was never intended to do. If the law tells us how to live, but doesn't give us the power to live it out, then what does Jesus do? Verse three, God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. In other words, you guys, Christ became what he was not so that we could become what we are not. Isn't that a gift? So the two ways that Paul is comparing here, not weak and strong, but flesh and spirit. The way of the flesh, we are bound in sin. It requires something of us that we just don't have to give. And it ultimately leads us to our death. But the way of the spirit, we enter in by believing that Jesus is in fact the Messiah who came and suffered and died and rose again. And when he did that, his grace covered and broke the bondage of our sin. And when we believe that grace and we believe in his forgiveness for us, we receive this forgiveness and this freedom that we have never known before. Yes, the flesh is still here and at work on me, but no longer in me. Because the righteousness that I needed but didn't have, you gave me yours. You made it so. And now I can have life and peace like I have never known before. This is the way. <laughs> it is. So at this point, I can imagine uh, the churches that are hearing Phoebe read this letter, I imagine they're feeling a little bit concerned. Paul's had some strong language about flesh and spirit, you know, and they're just thinking, we've been fighting over all of these issues and a lot of the ways that we've behaved and a lot of the things we've fought about have been like the flesh. So are we flesh or spirit? And I'm sure a lot of you are asking that same question this morning. Am I flesh or spirit? So Paul has a reminder for the churches, uh, for the believers in these churches, and the reminder stands for believers here today. So we're gonna pick that up in verse nine. 
You, however, are not in the flesh, but you are in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of the spirit, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Growing up, anytime I would um, go away from my parents for any extended period of time, like maybe a grandparent's house, or honestly, even when I went away to college, uh, my mom would say to me, Sarah, always remember who you are and whose you are. And she would say this to me because she hoped that uh, the reminder of my identity would influence the way that I lived. Okay? And this is what I hear Paul doing here. He's reminding the believers in this church of who they are and whose they are. He says, you are not of the flesh. You are of the spirit. Who is? Anyone in whom the spirit of God dwells. A couple weeks ago, Dave talked about the spirit of God being a gift to all who receive him as savior. So Paul is reminding them of their identity, their identity here, and he is hoping that the knowledge of their identity will influence the way that they live. Let's keep reading in verse 12. So then, brothers... We are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Did you hear all of the familial language that Paul uses in this passage? In verse 12, he calls them brothers. In verse 14, he says, if you're led by the spirit of God, you are sons of God. And then in 15, he says, you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Father. And then 16 and 17, he says, you are children of God. And if children, then heirs. You see, our identity always ties us with family. What Paul's saying here is, listen, if you've stepped into the new way, the way of the spirit, we're family. Like it or not, weak and strong, we are now one collective family. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. And as one collective family of God, we are no longer debtors to the flesh. We still feel the effects of the flesh, but we no longer owe it anything. We are not obligated to follow its ways. So weak and strong, why in the world are you fighting and arguing about things of the flesh? Paul's hoping if they can remember who they are and whose they are, then they'll stop acting the way they're acting towards each other. He wants them to know that their disunities and their judgments towards each other, they reek of the flesh, which they are no longer of. So stop putting on things of the flesh. Stop setting your mind on things that lead you to death. Your new identity in Christ should influence the way that you live. Let's look at some familiar words from Paul at the end of chapter eight. Verse 31, 
what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of God? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. In verse 38, for I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels or rulers or things present, things to come, nor powers, nor height, depth, anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God and Christ Jesus our Lord. So Paul has already reminded them of who they are, that they have this new identity in Christ and that identity should absolutely influence the way that they live. But now Paul is reminding them of whose they are, that you belong to Christ Jesus, that you've been adopted as sons and daughters. You've been brought into the family of God and you are held secure here by the love of Christ and what he did for you on the cross. So here's what Paul wants them to hear. Your identity should absolutely influence the way that you live but the way that you live does not influence your identity. If we could just wrap our minds around this, as believers in Christ, we have a new identity and it should influence how we live. But when our flesh creeps in and we don't measure up, which is inevitable, our identity is held secure in him and what he did on the cross. And church, if that's not good news for you this morning, then I don't know what is. And isn't it so easy for us to get this backwards in our minds? So often we think that it's our behavior that leads us to identity. How I behave defines who I am. That's what the world says, and that's what we tend to believe. But here, this is what Paul says. It is God who justifies us. It is Jesus Christ who died and was raised and is interceding for us even now. Why? Because it is his son's identity that is placed on us. We have the identity of Christ when we step into that new way. And everything that Jesus did on the cross points to this one thing, his everlasting, all-encompassing love for us. In verse 38, Paul says, I am convinced. Your version might say sure or persuaded. Now, this, these words, they all come from the same Greek word, which is patho, and patho means to be persuaded. And patho is the root of the Greek word pistis, which is admittedly just a really unfortunate word to have to use in a sermon. But pistis means faith. Now, the interesting thing about faith is that it is not something we obtain on our own. Faith is something that is a gift from God that only God can give us. So what Paul is saying here is, listen, this thing of which I am completely convinced, namely that nothing can separate us from the love of God. It is not something that he has arrived at in his own effort. Rather, it is something that God has divinely persuaded him of. 
a divine persuasion, and it is therefore distinct and different from any other human belief that he could have arrived at in his own effort and his own experience. It's a divine persuasion. And isn't it, uh, doesn't it just make perfect sense that the thing in which Paul is claiming to have divine confidence is the love of God and that nothing can separate us from it. See, the problem that um, a lot of these churches in Rome, and, and honestly, a lot of us today in our churches face, is that they were convinced in all the wrong ways. So often we're convinced that we're right, and not only that, but we're convinced that we're right about the thing that we're convinced is most important, right? Church, hear me say, it doesn't matter if I think it's important or you think it's important if God doesn't. Something I might think is most important or something you might think is most important may not be most important to God. See, the weak thought, and they were convinced that the law was most important. And the strong, they were convinced that grace and faith and spirit were most important, but that the law was a waste of their time. And rather than come to the family table as brothers and sisters, secure and convinced of God's love for each other, they allowed their differing views to brew judgments and disunities between each other. Their disagreements became a doorway for the flesh so that they were no longer operating in the spirit. See, the problem wasn't that they disagreed. The problem was how they disagreed. So then, when it comes to family disagreements and differing views within the family, how do I know if I'm being led by the flesh or led by the spirit? So I have a couple questions that you can jot down, and they'll be helpful in you thinking through the things that you feel like you disagree with in the family or you have differing views on. These are three helpful questions that you can ask yourself. Number one. Does my belief system or my way of thinking feel threatened by someone who holds a different view than mine? We can tend to feel threatened and defensive when we believe that we're right about the thing that we think is most important, okay? Question two, am I more concerned uh, about other people's sinful behavior than I am about the spirit and the fruit of the spirit being evident in me towards others? In other words, is your mind set on the flesh or on the spirit? And the third question, have you lost important relationships because of the way in which you have held a belief? Now, I'm not asking if you've lost relationships because of a belief that you have, but because you have held that belief in an unloving and judgmental way. Listen, disagreements in the family are inevitable, aren't they? We say it here at Vista all the time. Um, if you haven't been offended here yet by someone, stick around. But when you get offended by someone, stick around. Because disagreements are inevitable. But we need to disagree well. Verse 31 says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, church, how can we then be against each other? If God is for you, then I am for you. We may not agree about how Christians should live and act and vote and eat and sleep and drink and how churches should or should not operate. We may not agree on all of those things. But if I am convinced that God loves not only me, 
but also you. So much that he gave his only son to die on the cross to secure that love. If I'm convinced of that, then I can hold space for you. And not only do I want to, or not only am I able to, but I also want to, and why? Because if the greatest threat to the gospel is the division and disunity between the people who follow God, then wouldn't it just make sense for the greatest picture of the gospel to be a big family table full of different people with different opinions and different theologies? all held securely together in kindness and listening and the love of Jesus Christ. Let's give it a try. Let's pray. God, we are just so thankful for a new way because without that way, we would be devastated in our sin. We would be hopeless. We would be lost but you sent your son to create a new way for us that we could have life here and life eternal with you, God. And I know there are people here today that don't have an answer to this flesh or spirit question. I pray that you would um, just speak that truth over them, God. Draw us in, draw them in to the way of the spirit, God, that, that you invited us all into so that we could be one family here God, surface the disagreements that separate us. Uh, Forgive us for the flesh that enters in. You have covered every bit of that, and we say thank you.